Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Hui Huin, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. Good evening, Hui. And Brian Schmidt. Brian. <laughs> and Brian Schmidt, our newest co-host. Good evening, guys. Hey. So this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we do have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. I'd also like to say hello to our newest patron, Phil Evans. Thank you and we sincerely hope that all of you will give us your support. And stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going in on our shops. So let's get right into it. Brian, I'm going to give you the first question. All right. Batten, batten lead off tonight. Mm-hmm. This question is from Dylan. And Dylan says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Longtime listener. First time asking a question. I'm looking for recommendations on how to remove saw marks after ripping pieces to final width on the table saw. I recently built a couple rocking chairs for my kiddos and was looking for a super smooth surface finish on all four sides. My solution was to joint and plane the parts on three sides and then rip a 32nd or so oversized. After that, I set my joiner to 132nd and ran the cut edge back over the joiner to remove the saw marks. This method seems to work nicely. I'm using a jet cabinet saw and no matter how much I try to adjust it, I can never seem to get a rip without at least a few saw marks. Just looking for ways to improve my efficiency while in the shop. Thanks again, Dylan. Um, Dylan, I think I think everybody probably encounters that. I know I do. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time getting a truly smooth finish finished edge off the off the table saw. Even using a glue line rip blade, I end up with just a little bit of light saw chatter. What I don't, I don't trust the precision on my joiner and t- enough to, to take a 30 second off. So what I'll do is I'll actually take a piece over to, um, my planer and depending on, well, depending on the dimension of the piece you're looking to run through, I guess if you're, if it's the seat to the rocking chair, that's probably not going to work. Um, but if I've got longer, narrower stock, I'll always finish that, that other edge, um, on the planer for, for a seat or something like that. I think your joiner joiner approaches is perfectly valid. Mm-hmm. Guy, what do you think? Yeah, that's, that's a thing that happens to all of us. And yep. I guess I just gave up trying to not get it a long time ago. Cause it's just like, you know, what the heck it's going to happen. So I, I typically, if I'm edge joining boards together, I'm always going to final joint them anyways. Mm-hmm. So they're always going to go over the joiner. And I've always got slop. So 32nd, 16th of an inch doesn't really matter. So, but in cases where I'm not, you know, edge joining boards together, I, I've used everything from a hand plane to a card scraper to just sandpaper. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst is on cross cuts when you have to deal with end grain. End mm. grain takes the longest to sand off and it's a real pain to get it 
to get it right takes a long time. You'll spend more time on the end grain than you will the rest of the tabletop. Mm-hmm. 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 We? Yeah, I'm doing the same thing that uh, that you're doing there, Brian, which is I'm going to the joiner and I'm edge joining. And I'm, I'm typically, I, I think I have my joiner dialed in to take off a little over a 32nd of an inch, which is not very much at all, but, you know, I, I just... I have it set so I don't touch it. And if that means I have to take a few more passes on the edge joiner to get, uh, to get the edge, uh, all, all flat and level, not a big deal, but yeah, all of us experience that. But what I typically do is I will just like, uh, the listener, uh, alluded in, in his solution is I'm, I'm going a little over my final thickness that I need. And then I'm going to the edge joiner for anything that I need to be exactly a certain thickness or a certain width. I will go through the planer. Now, obviously you can't do that for like boards for a panel, but in that case, I'm always going a little over anyway, and I'm, I'm finishing off with the track saw or, or going through the table saw for the final edge, which doesn't have to be joined to another board. Right. So it wouldn't matter. Obviously, you know, uh, thinner panels on edge going through the planer. I mean, it kind of gets a little tippy there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking more like face frame stock. So oh, if I've absolutely. got inch and a half wide, three quarter inch thick boards. Um, yeah. Those are the ones yeah. where I'll, I'll bunch of, get a bunch of them together up on Correct. edge and run them through that way. Yeah. If you can gang those boards together, then the, they become almost, almost like a singular board going through. It's yeah. Like a, so I've heard people call it a rip and flip. Yep. Mm-hmm. There was a, a kind of a, a side story when I was fairly new in woodworking and was buying rough lumber from the lumber yard for the first time. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that that original straight edge that they that they give you, I didn't realize just quite how pronounced those saw marks are. And I had <laughs> I had a project that I did in our house where I didn't even I didn't even clean that side, and that's like the side of of the the face frame is the. Uh, and it's painted now. And it, I mean, it drives me nuts every time I see it. But um, <laughs> don't, don't forget to go back and clean up the uh, <laughs> that edge, too. Well, yeah. that just means you have to make another one for your wife. Yeah, there you go. In the future. Yeah. One that's right. not so terrible, Brian. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I hope that helps. Um, Hui? Uh, yeah, I've got the next question. And this is from Chuck Lovelady. And this is an interesting question. Uh, I think this is going to create some good discussion among us. When does something cross the line between being handmade and machine made? My nephew had a CNC machine and advertised the products as handmade. Is this all subjective anyways? Have a great day, Chuck. Ooh, man, that is, um, that is, that's an interesting one because I, and the reason why I'm bringing this up or why I really like this question is, I am building this china cabinet, and for the bracket feet, I'm actually thinking about uh, chucking up the stock on the CNC and doing the OG bracket feet on the CNC as opposed to running it across sideways on the table saw to get these coved sections on these bracket feet. But the rest of it is done very somewhat traditionally i guess i mean i am hand cutting the dovetails although i have looked at trying to actually machine cut those dovetails 
But even at that, even if you were to machine cut the dovetails, right? So let's say you were to put those dovetails on the carcass sides for this China cabinet I'm building on a dovetail jig, right? I mean, yeah, you're pushing the, the router bit through the material, but I don't know. Like, I, I, I want this to kind of be more of a discussion than me just giving an answer because I think it kind of alludes to that. Where does that line, where is that line drawn? Right. I mean, obviously, if we look at like prefabricated furniture, flat pack furniture that you get from, say, the big box store or something like that, that's all that's all really being manufactured right on a machine. And there are machines that are set up to do specific things. And and these things are being pushed out at, I don't know, whatever rate they're being pushed out at. But for somebody that's making one piece at a time, even though it might be significantly done on a machine, well, I mean, I imagine his nephew isn't pushing out, you know, 20 pieces at a time on a CNC. I imagine that it, there's quite a bit of setup and quite a bit of thought that he had to put into uh, optimizing his processes. So where does that line, where is that line drawn? Where do, where do you guys kind of draw that line? Brian? Yeah, I think handmade, machine made, you know, what impact does a CNC have on that? I don't know if we apply it to plywood, let's say, mm -hmm. and you get plywood where you've got a machine that is, you know, cutting the veneers off that log and it's sorting them and stacking them and organizing them. And it's going through this machine process all the way through. Mm -hmm. um, there's really no human, human touch, no hands on it. Yeah. Hands operate the machine um, or the software that, that operates machines, but um, you could end up going from raw material to finished product without, you know, single human hand touching a sheet of plywood. You could mm -hmm. also create plywood by hand, maybe in smaller panels, but you could veneer your veneer your uh, or cut your veneer on the bandsaw and create a smaller uh, panel there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's a machine involved in doing that. So I don't know. I, I tend not to get too too wrapped up over it. Um, I think using a CNC, as long as there's, as long as there's some individual touch to it and some design to advertise mm -hmm. it as handmade. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's tough and it's polarizing too. I, I understand there are a lot of people that feel really passionately about it. I'm just, I'm not one of those. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this guy? I mean, what, well, what where's that I, line for you? I, 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 for me, there isn't a line mm -hmm. as far as, you know, Yes, is this subjective? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely subjective. Let mm -hmm. me give you an example of something else that's subjective that's thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm going to buy something at the grocery store, and I've got one box of this thing, and then the box right next to it says all natural. Mm. Huh. And it's more money. Right. Huh. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but unless... It came from outer space. <laughs> it's natural. Oh, yeah. Plastic is natural. Mm -hmm. Everything is natural. <laughs> it, came from the Earth. it came from this planet. Therefore, it's natural. And that's why I view this kind of stuff. It, you, all, people split hairs mm -hmm. over silly things. Mm -hmm. And they, they get, they get you know, wrapped around the axle about stuff like this. And, and I can understand that, but I'm just like Brian. I'm not one of those. Mm -hmm. it, 
I've got much more important things to worry about mm -hmm. than whether this is handmade or machine made and get into that argument. So if somebody feels that strongly about it, you know, that's, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm good with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. how I, that's how I feel about it. In other uh, words, I just really don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I, Guy, I know you have a CNC machine. You've got a 3D printer. I have a CNC machine. I don't have a 3D printer. Wish I had one. Uh, Brian, I don't think you have a CNC machine at all. And Not so, you know, a, a person like yourself who's in the shop making things that are quote unquote handmade. I mean, do you get upset when, you know, somebody, a competitor of yours or whatnot is, is making cabinets but not using you know, a panel saw or a table saw to push the material through, but is rather cutting that material on a huge, you know, five by 10 CNC cutting panels out to make carcass sides. And is that something that really one you care about, but is that something also really that maybe necessarily the client even cares about? I, I definitely do not care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't think, I don't think any of my clients would, would care either. Right. So, mm -hmm. If you're buying prefab cheap cabinet boxes from Lowe's and trying to pass them off as, you know, handcrafted Man, custom yeah. cabinetry, it's like, okay, maybe that, maybe that's yeah. a little annoying or misleading, but. Um, or if you order all of your cabinets from, you know, like cabinets on the go or whatever, and they're prefabricated and they come, you slap them together and put them into your client's houses. Like, I handmade these. That right. might be a problem. And well, I think if it's what they, but I think if it's what they want, like <laughs> at the end of the day, like that's kind of the only thing that matters, um, mm -hmm. unless it's important to them to tell the story of how the cabinets were built, which has never been the case for mm -hmm. for any project I've done. Um, it's all been about the end deliverable and how it serves their function and style. So, um, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. If they're happy, I think if they're happy with the price and they're happy with your processes of how you're doing it, then I think there's nothing really to complain about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Well, I hope that intrigues you enough, Chuck. And, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it might be a good conversation to have with your nephew in terms of like, Hey, what are you doing here? And maybe, maybe in some way you might learn something from him too, because, uh, CNCs are pretty cool and they're, they're pretty, they're pretty nifty to, to use. I definitely enjoy having mine. So, all right, guy, you got the next one, man. All right. This is from Buffalo Custom Woodwork. And he asks, what do you think is the best paint for furniture that will see use and abuse? I've been experimenting with some different options, and I haven't found anything that I think I will stick with. And I do not want to put a clear coat over the paint. Hmm. Looking for something very hard and durable as the next time I need it, it will be for chairs. Any suggestions would be much appreciated. Thanks. Buffalo Custom Woodworking. I don't know what his name is. I was going to say thanks, Buffalo. <laughs> We've talked about this a, a, a few times on the show before. And before I get into what I think my answer is, um, I want to talk about some of the, the, the progressions that I've gone through over the years. I used to paint furniture with just regular you know, latex or enamel paint mm -hmm. quite a bit. Mm. Um, I'd prime it, I'd paint it as far as, but I've, I, the only time I ever put a clear coat over something, I regretted it because it turned yellow on me. 
Mm, and I yes. said I'd never do it again. And that was a very long time ago. You know, paint is is not the most durable thing in the world. It's just that's just the way it is. Um, the only thing that can really give you any type of protection. I'm not saying protect the wood necessarily, but something that's a hard, durable finish that I like to use. And I'm going to say it. What's What What am I going to say, Hui? Uh, pigmented conversion or water-based pigmented conversion varnish. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Um, I found it's, it's very easy to put on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually have seen people brush it on too. So mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily need a spray gun. You can brush it on. It's not going to lay as flat as you would as it would with a with a spray gun. But I I haven't tried it. But I would think that just like water based polyurethane, mm-hmm. you could um, roll it on, mm. and that okay. lays very very flat when you roll on water-based polyurethane. So mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder if, if anybody has ever really, I, I guess I should have looked it up to played around with um, adding their own pigment to let's say a water-based polyurethane. To make yeah. It a so color. kind of, kind of like making a toner or just make it, make it a, a custom color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But like I said, I, my, the answer I'm sticking with, as always, is a water-based conversion varnish. Yeah. And I, you can get it pigmented in just about any color. And it, yeah. it's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's very hard and very durable and repairable. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah, I agree. But I'm going to go a different direction because I've used it before. And I, I do like this product. Um and I've used it on a couple of fin- furniture refinishing things. In fact, actually, our nightstands are refinished with General Finishes Milk Paint. Now, the issue with using milk paint is that they only have certain specific colors. So, uh, and, that, do you have to use like low fat or skim milk with it? Or because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm oat, lactose intolerant. Oak, oat milk, oat milk, oat milk okay. paint, almond, <laughs> almond milk. Almond milk. Uh, are you really lactose intolerant? That has nothing to do with the topic. Forget that. Forget I asked that. Um, no, but seriously, uh, the milk paint works very well. It dries very hard. And I, in the nightstands guy, made the mistake that you made, which is I put a polyurethane over top of it. And that was really stupid because it yellowed. You know, I, I had this beautiful ivory white milk paint on these nightstands and now they're they've yellowed over time and yeah that was really stupid of me shouldn't have done that should have just went with the regular milk paint which is what they tell you is that you can put a clear coat over top of it but you don't need to i thought i was being clever by putting a clear coat over top of it and it just ended up yellowing so too smart for your own good yeah i've heard i've heard good things about milk paint too i've just never tried it yeah yeah how and go ahead go ahead no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, how, how durable is the milk paint? Uh, I don't know how durable it is, but it's it's held up very well for us in terms of regular use. Yeah. Uh, in terms of my son's crib, my, now my son's crib is painted with Chem Aqua Plus, which is a water-based 
conversion varnish type pigmented stuff, right? And dude has chewed on it. And I will say this much, it doesn't matter what you're painting. If it's made of wood, his teeth are going to go through it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, like it doesn't matter how durable that milk paint is his t or how durable that chem aqua plus or the milk paint is his teeth will go through it. In fact, actually I have a picture of him biting the, the hand carved claw for my rocker on my Windsor Walker, <laughs> he's like abiding on it. I have a picture of his hilarious and yeah, he's going to leave teeth marks, right? So yeah. How durable is it? I don't know. It's durable enough for normal use, but like, it's not going to be durable enough for your kid's teeth. <laughs> have, have you ever used milk paint, the milk paint you have for anything other than that one project you co covered with uh, a clear coat at the top of it? Yes, I, I used it also for the for uh, the Windsor Rocker that I built, uh, but that was a very very traditional style of milk paint, one in which you actually have to mix it, not with milk. It has uh, proteins in it, but it's mixed with water. But the reason why it's called milk paint is it's because it originally milk paint used spoiled curdled milk as the protein base for the pigment, the, uh, the carrier, it ends, ends up being the carrier for the pigment that you add to it. Um, probably more information than you needed. Uh, but you know, yeah. So yeah. There, there's, there's lots of different kinds of milk paint. Yeah. The, the, the kind, the kind that I know, and that I actually recommend a lot of people use is general finishes type. It, it's a very good one. That is not a sponsored pitch by any means. Yeah, I've used it yeah. and I like it. So it's, it's good stuff. Uh, how about you, Brian? And, yeah, any, you, paint, you paint a lot of stuff. You paint a lot of stuff, yeah? I Actually, I No, paint that's right. You don't nothing. paint it. I paint nothing. That's right. I'm a lousy painter. So my <laughs> clients either paint it themselves or they hire it out to a true professional. So, Do, do you recommend something to them? Uh, hire a professional. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a our, our, listeners, our listeners are like, who is this guy? Like, I would never hire him. I this is a. Let me want to be clear. I am. I am not a professional woodworker. I am simply a, an, a finance and accounting professional that has a very small side side. Well, so. you know, Brian, I'll tell you what. I I got connected with a guy here. His name's Paul and he owns a CNC shop, but he makes cabinets. He does a whole bunch of different things. He's got four guys working for him. And he told me as well that, "Hey, it's $100 an hour if you want me to do something specific in the shop pertaining to the machinery, right? If you if it's not project based, but you want me to do something specific because I have the machinery, it's $100 an hour. We've got a spray booth we got a, a guy who knows how to spray very well. You bring them product, we'll spray it for you. And, you know, it'll be in the booth. We'll, we'll have it drying for you. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that's really nice. If I've got a project for a client and it's a big project and I really don't want to, you know, put the drop cloths down and everything, I'll pay him. I'm yeah. totally, totally there with you. They've got the equipment. They've got the, the, uh, the, the, right type of ventilation it yep. they're going to do a good job just pay them yep so yeah. all right well I, I i hope that answers some of your questions there mr buffalo custom woodworking so brian 
The next question, Steve? Yeah. Uh, this question is from John. And John said, hey, guys, I have a couple hundred bucks left over from my uh, December birthday and Christmas haul that I plan to spend on woodworking supplies or tools. I keep a running wish list throughout the year of various woodworking things I need, air quotes around need there. Uh, so there's no shortage of things I could spend it on. However, I don't want to waste it. That has encouraged me to just sit on it for now. And I feel like I'm at a bit of a crossroads. Do I simply save it and put it towards a big, more expensive tool down the road? Um, for example, I don't currently have any kind of planer or joiner, or do I use it to buy some of the, the less fancy, but more useful day-to-day -day items that every shop should have, such as better bits, blades, consumables, jigs, etc. For reference, at this point in my woodworking career, I do mostly hobbyist or DIY level work. I have either budget or secondhand versions of most basic hand and power tools in the basic bigger tools, like a benchtop drill press, contractor saw, miter saw. I would love to delve into the more serious set of woodworking one day, so I do have a goal of getting a planer and joiner down the road. But realistically, I know if one fell down from the heavens into my shop tomorrow, it wouldn't get used immediately. Regardless of my own personal decisions, I thought it'd be cool to get your take on what you would consider the top small ticket items that every shop should have. So let's position this as, he says, a couple hundred bucks. So let's say it's $300. So with $300, you've got a, you've already got the benchtop drill press, a contractor saw, and a miter saw. No joiner or planer, but not sure they're going to get used right away. What would you spend $300 on? Um Ooh. Ooh, yeah, a lot Ooh. of different directions uh, to go there, John. I would, I like, I like what you said about not buying the joiner and planer right away because you don't think they're going to get used immediately. Yeah, every tool purchase I've ever regretted is a tool purchase that I made before I actually needed the tool, but because I <laughs> thought it would be nice to have. And even if I thought I was going to need it someday seems like I never end up actually needing it and it ends up collecting dust. Mm -hmm. um, if it was me, I would actually look at getting like a, um, a more economy bench top or uh, lunchbox planer. I know mm -hmm. you say you don't need one, but if you've already got a drill press, a contractor saw and a miter saw, the, the planer is really the only thing that's keeping you from expanding into the different types of lumber that aren't otherwise available at a Lowe's or a Home Depot or a Menards. Yeah. And you don't need a joiner um, because you can joint boards a number of different ways, including using uh, the planer and table saw. Mm -hmm. um, but if you knew what your next project is or, or what you want to, how you want to grow as a woodworker in the next uh, six months to a year. Um, I would, I would think what, what tool do you need in order to, to grow into that area or to complete that next project and make that be the tool. Even if it, even if it doesn't seem all that exciting, mm -hmm. um, if it helps you get that next skill learned, or if it helps you get that next project done, that's the right tool for you. Um, but at $300, the planer is the one that seems to me like it would have the biggest impact. Uh, mm -hmm. Guy, what do you think? I, I couldn't agree more. I have a, uh, an account set aside that if I'm doing a project and I know I'm going to be doing this, this, and this, and I say, oh, I don't have one of these. I better order one. Yeah. It doesn't come out of my household budget 
and my wife doesn't know about it more important than anything else. So <laughs> the tools come in and I use them. And sometimes I, I may never use them again. I've got drawers of stuff I've only used one time. Sure. Which is fine. Sometimes I may, I, I, I keep them around because I may use it someday. Mm-hmm. And I tend to hoard stuff. But um, yeah, I, I, I really hate recommending, you know, buy this. Buy that, buy this, buy that. Um, I have made decisions that way. You know, boy, that's really cool. I want that. Yeah. And, I, and I do buy it. And some, sometimes it does sit in the drawer and I never use it. Sometimes it becomes my most favorite tool. Yeah. I mean, it's a real grab bag. So if, if, if you don't have a huge budget, I, I do recommend just setting it aside let it grow, but don't buy stuff until you abs- not, not saying absolutely need it, but actually have a use for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm actually going to recommend a tool. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And the reason why I'm going to recommend this tool is because I think even if he's not necessarily ready to go in some of the more advanced woodworking things, but he wants to make maybe more simpler things, smaller boxes, uh, cutting boards, trinkets, things like that, I think he's still going to need this tool. And I don't see it on his list. And that tool is a handheld router, a good handheld router. Mm. Uh, one about maybe two and a half horsepower, uh, something with a little bit of weight to it. Um, not like a small palm router or those. Those are very useful as well. And I think you can get a pretty good one for under $200, uh, which, you know, it, it, we're, we're, playing hypotheticals here the hypothetical is he's got three hundred dollars saved up yeah I, I would actually say a router a handheld router because i think it's one of those tools that man once i got one i started doing a lot more uh, stuff with it and the different types of joinery and different techniques i mean you could even if you had it in a router table which i mean that's another added cost but you could make maybe a homemade router table you could edge join it with with a with a homemade homemade split uh split fence uh and do that so i'm gonna go the opposite direction say hey maybe consider getting a router a handheld router a good one because uh, it's not on your list of things that you have so yeah there you go all right all right anything else no i i'm trying to let's see did he say i know guy you meant maybe you mentioned that you do this but i keep a i do keep a wish list um in my grocery shopping app, I've got a separate list there for <laughs> tools. And every time I'm like, man, I wish I had that tool. I add it there. Oh, man. And that way, that way it's easy when, when resources do become available, it's easy to go through and you can kind of quickly survey that, that list. And it's an actual list and not just a mental list. Yeah. Um, and that way I know whenever I do make those purchases that, um, it's well thought out and I can make it confidently and not have that, that buyer's remorse of, Oh, I forgot about that one thing. Is it, is it like the thing, is the thing on your list, like a, a general kind of thing, or is it a specific tool made by a specific manufacturer? It's like, I want that one there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I did actually create a, 
listen, I love, I love tools, right? So I have a Brian gift ideas list um, <laughs> in, in my wife and I's grocery app and it's got links to the actual product because um, I am you very particular with it. Right. So, yeah. um, but no, I've got things like planer lot, planer knives, air compressor, uh, compression bit, uh, mortise chisel, a nice handsaw, paraffin wax, uh, rasps, router lift, a second Incra miter gauge in case Incra is listening, a shop <laughs> stool, and uh, white chalk or a white pencil. Yeah. So some yeah. some of them are consumables and some of them are are actual tools. But um, I know I know specifically what they're going to be when I do buy them. But, That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Uh, we. All right. This question is from Tyler. He's, he says, Happy New Year's. Well, thank you. It's March, but you know we're getting around to your question. Thank you for sending it in, Tyler. Uh, I recently scored a router table on Facebook Marketplace for $500. Not bad. The Woodpecker's PRL1 lift, Incra Jig Ultra Fence. I've got that. And Porter Cable 3 and a quarter horsepower router. Man, you scored one of those because they don't make them anymore. One, what's your favorite lubricant for threaded parts like router lifts and table saw arbor, arbor tilts. Other than keeping them clear of dust so they don't overheat, is there any other maintenance to extend the life of a router? They don't make a Porter Cable router anymore, so I want to keep this one in top condition. Yeah, great question. One great score on getting that Porter Cable three and a quarter horsepower router. I mean, it's it's a beast and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful router, especially for a router lift. What's your favorite lubricant for threaded parts? I like using Dynaglide. It's a dry lubricant. It came in a can. And the only reason why I know about it is I had gotten the micro fence. You know what I'm talking about, right, guy? Yep. I can't remember his name. Richard? I think it's Richard. Richard. Yep. And uh, whenever you order one of his uh, micro fences, he gives you a can of uh, Dynaglide. And I used it for the first time on saw on my saw blades. I liked it. And then I started using it on my planer table because for whatever reason, my planer table gets sticky over time. And I love that stuff. And it it you know, once it dries, it dries clear. It doesn't leave any residue and it does a great job of uh, lubricating uh, threaded parts. Um, I mean, what do you guys use? Is, is there anything from the big box store that that works just as well as Dynaglide? Cause I think Dynaglide is kind of a pricey, uh, pricey lubricant. Yeah. I've, I've used a lot of different things. Um, one thing I, you know, lubricating the threads for your, you know, the, the, the trunnions on your table saw is a lot different than lubricating the, the rods on a micro fence. Okay. Two completely different animals. So, I don't, I've, I've used grease in the past, but I mean, over the years, I can only think of a handful of times I've had to lubricate stuff that, that has threads on it. A lot of the stuff now I use, I use a, uh, a PTFE lubricant, Mm -hmm. which is like a type of silicone lubricant. Mm -hmm. Doesn't, it, it, it works fine. Seems to work fine anyways. I haven't had any issues with it. Uh, I've I've been wiping it on the the rods, just put it on a rag and putting it on on rods that need to be lubricated. And I've put it on bearings. I've put it on threads. I've 
done all kinds of stuff with it and it seems to work fine and it's you can buy that at the big box store okay okay so then so, it's so you brought up the arbor right or not the arbor but uh, the tilt. yeah the trunnion what what would you I mean, I imagine that would your manual would probably tell you what type of lubricant because I, I think it's some type of grease, isn't it? Yeah, I've just used like white lithium grease, mm-hmm. but I've also yeah. got a grease gun, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. I, I might squirt some on there. But it's mm-hmm. it's it's so messy and it it dust builds up on it and it's just bah. Yeah, I so Brian, any thoughts? I usually just use. Um, my air comp- I'll hook up my air compressor and I'll just kind of blow blow off any dust or any buildup that way. Mm-hmm. I've never I've never added any any sort of uh, grease or lubricant to be to be or hey guy to clarify the Dynaglide that you referenced. Are you saying you would not want to put that on on the like the table saw uh, tilt mechanism or anything like that? No, I, I'm not saying I, I wouldn't put it on. It's just it's not really made for that. It's not really it's not made, made for that. Okay. It, it, yeah. what, what it's made for is that if you've got something like the 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 micro jig, where micro you've fence. got micro fence, yeah. Yeah. or you've got uh, a steel rod going through not even a bearing, but a piece of another piece of machined aluminum. Okay, and it's just metal on metal. Yeah. Um, yep. The the. Something like a, a a table saw, you know, they're the, the trunnions. It's a it's an acme thread. It's got gaps between the the, the thread the mm-hmm. threads on both pieces, so it's backlash, and this stuff sits in there, so it doesn't. Eh, I, I don't want to get into all that stuff, and I, I don't I don't really know that much about it to get into all of it, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, if my if I'm lowering my table saw blade. And I hear it squeak. I go, okay. I'll, I actually, I have a grease gun with white lithium grease in it. And I'll just mm. put a couple shots on there, roll it up, roll it down. I go, okay, I'm good until it starts squeaking again. Yeah, yeah. And it might be five years before it, I do that anymore. Right, right, right. So, so he talks about here, other than keeping them clear, and I, I believe he's referring to the Porter Cable three and a quarter horsepower router, other than keeping them clear of dust so they don't overheat, is there any other maintenance to extend the life of a router? And I will say this much. I have had my three and a quarter porter cable, three and a quarter horsepower porter cable underneath and inside my router lift for eight years, nine years. And I've never gone in there and cleared out the stuff because it has a fan in there that's blowing across the fins of the motor and the motor is sealed. So you're not going to get really dust in there. I mean, I guess the inlet of where the fans are could get clogged, but it's never been an issue because I've got dust collection underneath and it's drawing out all the dust. Um, And a lot of times with your router table, you're going to have some type of dust port underneath the chamber of where the uh, the router is. So it really shouldn't be an issue if you've got decent, di- and and by decent I mean just, you know, like a one or two horsepower dust collector hooked up to it. I don't think you're going to really have much of a problem. I will say this, and we mentioned this before, and the reason why I mentioned this is because it's just a good practice to keep 
that cup that your router that your um, collet goes in, keeping that clean is probably something very good to do on a regular basis. Because if you get stuff in there, it won't properly lock down on your router bit, and that could be dangerous. Uh, guys, anything else that that you can think of about keeping that Porter cable router, you know, running for a good bit? I mean, gosh, I've had mine for eight years and never done anything to it, and it's still running fine. Yeah, I've had, I've had, I've got that same one, the seventy five eighteen. I've had it for two or three years, and I bought it. You, I bought it used. It came in the router used router table that I bought at that time. So I don't even, I don't even know how old it is, but it it still runs great. Um, I switch back and forth between a quarter inch and half inch collet fairly often, um, depending on which bit I'm spinning. And whenever I do that, I just make sure that all the threads and everything like that are, are clean. Um, in addition to, to that kind of cup area where the bit, the shank of the bit's going to seat down into, um, Mm -hmm. just to, to, yeah, make sure that the bit's not going to come flying out at me. Yeah. Yeah. maintenance on a router you know you know both you guys talked about cleaning the 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 collet out and stuff like that there's motors do typically do one of two things they either work or they do not (laughs) Not work work. (laughs) there's really no maintenance on them the only thing that can really other than just catastrophic failure of the thing is Brushes might need to be replaced. Yeah, yeah. that does happen. Mm-hmm. I, I remember my uh, my old Dewalt thickness planer. I had replaced the brushes on that thing maybe three or four times over the period of time I had it. Really? Well, it, was, it was an old lunchbox planer. I had it for twenty years. Oh, oh gotcha. Okay, <laughs> we're, we're talking before the Dewalt, the before the four post. Before the four post. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. yeah. I had that thing forever. Um, I mean, I bought it in the mid nineties, maybe. So, um, and it got used a lot. And the only thing I ever had to do with, with that, I mean, and that had a universal motor on it and it just brushes and and the the motors, like I said, our motors and in the, the, especially, you know, like a motor, I'm not changing the subject, but like a motor on like a table saw, you know, I see some, sometimes I talk to guys or whatever that have table saws that are, you know, 50, 60 years old and have the original motor on them. Yeah. So motors really, there's really no maintenance you can do to a motor. Yeah. I really wouldn't. In other words, I really wouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah. You got a good, you got a good deal. Yeah, you got a a really good deal on that. All that. Yeah. Yep. For sure. For sure. Well, guy, you've got the last question, man. I do. I do. This comes from Dwayne. Hausler, I believe, is his last name. Uh, I hope I didn't butcher that, Dwayne. Anyways, so for Christmas this past year, I made a few cutting boards as gifts using maple, walnut, and a few pieces of purple art. In my design process, I managed to make one of the cutting boards slightly too big to fit on first glue-up through my DeWalt DW735 planer. That's the four-post planer we were just talking about a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In order to save some time, I just ran the piece through the table saw to get the over-width down to just under 13-inch. On the first pass through the planer, everything went as planned. The second pass didn't go so great. 
at around three quarters of the way through, three quarters of the way through, mind you, the planer dug into the piece and put some pretty nasty snipe into the piece. I'd say around four or five inches from the end of the board and almost an eighth of an inch deep. What would cause that to happen? Narrow pieces that I ran through haven't given me any snipe since. Is it due to me using the entire 13 inches of the cutter head? Because of my snipe issue, I'm really hesitant on running anything wide through the planer now. I want to experiment using some cheaper wood, but I just haven't found time to do so yet. Thanks for the help, Dwayne. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're thanking me for the help. I don't know how much help I'm going to be. I what causes snipe is the rollers pressing down on one end of the wood and not the other. And it will cause the wood to tip up or tip down, whether it's going in or out. Yes. So it doesn't sound like that's the issue, though, because it's, he says it's going about three quarters of the way through or six or seven inches from the end of the board. And mm -hmm. on that, it, you've got to have contact over both rollers. The reason I took this question is because I, I wanted to hear what you know you guys might know, because we, you are, as we all know, a rocket scientist. <laughs> so, uh, and Brian is a financial genius, which qualifies him to, you know, talk about tools. Um, <laughs> anyways, yeah. but but if, if it were me, the first thing I would do is I would check the the pressure on my rollers, and I'd clean the rollers. Other than that, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do. If it's if it was one thing happening it or that one time it happened it might have just been kind of like a freak occurrence if it's not happening anymore you know if it ain't broke don't fix it yeah. Ryan, what do you think yeah yeah it it doesn't sound like he's really run anything else through since then and occasionally i'll have i'll have something like that happen usually it's if i've got a really really sloppy like cutting board glue up and maybe i've got just what was came across really thick on one end um mm. ends up being thinner on the other end and when you set your depth you set your depth of cut based on the side you're feeding in first and depending on if you had unevenness in the boards thinking okay i'll just flatten this out or thickness this out on the planer. It's possible that it was actually a little thicker towards the back of the board. And when it got to that, it really dug in at that point. I've had that happen. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's my most likely diagnosis of it. That's a um, uh, very insightful, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. But it, that never even crossed my mind. <laughs> so, so anytime I've had some really, really bad occurrences on the planer is when I've gone a little too aggressively. And it's usually the situation that you're talking about. We're talking about like rough lumber. In this case, it's a cutting board. So you might have some unevenness with the glue up, which he talks about, I think. And my thought is, did you, were you sure that the underside wasn't too uneven in which case it might have then as it, as the feed rollers are pressing down you're causing it to come up slightly and then dig into that material and getting that snipe and then it leveled out and evened itself out as it was now referencing a different plane or a different uh, part of the surface that was uneven on that plane on that uh, cutting board i'm wondering if that's 
and, and, and by the way, Brian, it's very similar in, in to a, in an extent to what you're talking about, which is, you know, you, you've got thinness on one side, but thi- a little thicker on the other side. And essentially you're just chopping off more than you can really bite. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so po- possibly that, um, I'm wondering if he put it through, how is he getting right? Because potato chip in potato chip out. How is he getting that one face flat before he puts it through the planer? Um, I've always done like, particularly when I'm doing like an end grain cutting board, I've always, I've always gone through the uh, drum sander instead of the planer. Oh yeah. You can't, you can't put end grain through the, through the plane. You can, but you can't, you have to take off. You want to explode it. You're going to explode it. Yeah. Um, what kind of cutting did, did, did he say? End no. grain cutting? No, it's yeah, not. I don't, okay. I don't so think it's an end grain. I think it's just a, a edge grain or edge grain. Yeah. 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 And I'm wondering if he had like maybe a whole bunch of glue on one, on, on the other side that like kind of accumulated and maybe caused it to lift up and, 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 um, took a little bit of a bigger bite on that part, which caused the snipe. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, maybe those are things there. Those are all good things to look for though. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good suggestions. Yeah. So, so Dwayne, Dwayne asked, is it due to me using the entire 13 inches of the cutter head? I don't think so. I don't no. think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think no, so. And that's, that's why I said, I think it was just a flyer on that one board. He's talked about, you know, yep. I put narrower pieces through and haven't had issues. Yeah. So. Maybe make a cutting board of, of some cheaper scraps that you might have running around and, and, and see what happens. But I, I, I think it sounds like it was a fluke. And and just the circumstances of what you were running through that material. And if and if you need scrap for cutting boards, come to Indianapolis. Go on the side of our building, and we have a special bin. I'm not kidding you. We have a special bin that we put wood in that for people to come and grab. Really? Oh, and there's sometimes very very nice. I was out there today, and there's like a, a a kind of almost like a walnut big piece of walnut that was glued up. It was a couple feet long and a couple feet wide and it would could have been used for a pretty decent tabletop. Yeah, we what? we threw we threw out a, a 48 inch uh quarter sawn red oak round the other day. <laughs> what happened there? Uh we'll talk about it in the yeah. yeah, I didn't hear about that one. Yeah. Other than it's well, quarter sawn red oak. Yeah, a little honeycomb in the drying process. Oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's true. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I guess what I what I'm really alluding to, there's got to be cabinet shops like ours around wherever you live, mm-hmm. and go and find out if they they have scraps that they give out to people because I know there's two or three shops here in town and they all do it. We all give yeah. our stuff away because we'll drop. Yeah, we'll drown in it if we don't. Well, not yep. only will we drown in it, but it's a it's a cost savings for us because we don't like to put that in the dumpster because you're charged by weight on the dumpster loads. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it for the questions. We, what do you have going on in your shop at home? Oh God! What kind of exciting projects do you have going on? Cutting a whole bunch of dovetails right now. Yay. Um, yay. And unfortunately. By hand I, or by jig? 
kind of both. So are I'm they handmade using... or are they machine made? Oh, uh, <laughs> so I'm using a Japanese saw. I'm, I'm, typically, I use a Western saw, but this time I'm using a Japanese saw, and they're just so such they're long... organic. <laughs> sure, natural, <laughs> um, but they're such long panels that I'm dovetailing that I couldn't use my dovetail jig. Otherwise, I would have. Um, because of the, so the, you said the length or the, the width of the, the board, le- the length, the length. Um, I, I just, I don't want, I, I don't know how I'm going to, I didn't, fi- I can't figure out how would, uh, conveniently mount the jig to a long board in a vertical fashion. I mean, I know I can build something to put the jig on, but I didn't want to do all that. Yeah, yeah, I dig it. So, so I just, I just cut it by hand. I'm just cutting it by hand. Uh, so I'm pre-marking everything and I'm using like a dovetail gauge or whatever to mark everything. And then I'm hand cutting it with a magnetic guide because I'm laying it down. I don't want to cut it vertically because you get all that vibration, right? Where it's mounted. So I'm laying it down and I'm cutting it with a magnetic dovetail guide. And yeah, I'm just, at this point I cut all of them. I just got to, and, and, uh, went in there with a coping saw to remove all the material. Now I just got to chop to the line and that's just taking forever. <laughs> but that's all I've got going on. Uh, cutting a whole bunch of dovetails on some long panels, 67 inches long, 46 inches wide or 46 inches long on for the width of the final cabinet and 67 why, inches. Why, what are the dovetails? Why? It, they're for the case. Because the original piece that I'm making a replica of was done that way, and that's the way the client wants it. She wants it to be built similar to how her father built this china cabinet. It's a very interesting project, by the way. Uh, Brian, what do you got going on, man? I am about eight days into a sawdust-free Lent. (laughs) um, (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, so... um, Spending had been spending a lot of time in the shop and uh, looking to step back for a little bit and um, focus on focus on some priorities and spend some time with the family and shed a bit a little margin into my life. So, gonna take uh, gonna take the Lenten season uh, away from making sawdust. That said, I I was up in uh, Fort Wayne last weekend for the birth of my niece. Hey Maggie, Um, and. uh, my dad had given me a gift certificate to Weibel's You Pick Lumber up in South Milford. And we'd been trying to get up there forever. And we went up and we spent a couple hours up there just picking out lumber for some projects that he and I are each planning. So, hey, that, no, that, that's no, family time. That's family yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it really was. So, no <laughs> sawdust, but uh, prepping, for, uh, prepping for some things I'll work on later this spring. Oh, well, at least, at least you, you can spend time in the shop and visit your tools. You don't have to yeah, them exactly, on, exactly. But you can go down there and whisper sweet nothings into yeah. their innards. Yeah, I didn't say I couldn't play darts in the shop. So, yeah. guy, what are you working on? Oh, nothing. I finally, finally got everything done on those that staircase that I was repairing. So my wife's been, you know, filling in my holes that I, the gaps that are in there and she's getting ready to paint it. I think this weekend. Um, Oh, nice. Other than that, she's, she's got, always got a list of stuff for me to do so I can never find much time to get anything done. 
So I'm trying to find time to do this and that for myself while trying to get stuff done for her. And there just hasn't been much time lately. So really not much at all. So anyhow, I think that's going to do it for the show. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have a woodworking question you would like answered, you can send it through the podcast contact page at woodshoplife.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can be found just about everywhere at Guy's Woodshop. And where can you be found at, Wheat? I can be found not on TikTok, but everywhere else at Alabama Woodworker. I'm not on TikTok uh, either. Uh, yeah. Brian, how about you, man? I have a few projects posted on simplecove.com at Brian Schmidt. All right. Nice. All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. And uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. See you in a see couple of weeks. See you guys. Weeks. Bye.